This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Guys, welcome back. It's the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. Before we get into it, let's take care of a lot of business. I want to welcome back to 2024 my friends at Broadback Ironworks, makers of the 2x72 grinder. This thing is awesome. Uh, I'm a huge fan. I love my grinders. I love the customer service. I love supporting small businesses. And Vince and Ryan and Ben are, and the guys over Broadback are doing it. So go to broadbackironworks.com, check out their 2x72 grinders, and check out their packages, and check out their... Um, attachments and if you put in the promo code knife talk 10 you're gonna get 10 percent off everything ladies and gentlemen everything broadback ironworks.com next are my friends at even heat even heat are the manufacturers of the finest heat treat ovens available to get your next oven go to evenheat-kiln.com gotta check out that tap control solid state drive all their um, specialties they have the turn and burn which is set it and forget it all that stuff but once again, another small business that has awesome customer service. You call them up, we have a problem, they take care of it. They're very good. These are two, so far, all the, the people that I deal with have a great customer service, great product. I highly recommend them. Go to evenheat-kiln.com. Check out what's going on with them. Many thanks. Happy New Year to those guys. In Australia, my friends at Nordic Edge. That's at Nordic underscore Edge on Instagram. They are pro tool makers and knife makers in Australia and they are behind the original file guide with the screw on carbides they have all sorts of other equipment plus knife making stuff if you want to get into knife making in Australia go to nordicedge.com.au they have products they have tools they have things to get you started things to get you resupplied from pros to people just starting out this is the place for you they also teach classes i would highly recommend checking out my boys over at nordicedge.com and if you think well this is one of those another one of those pop-up schools well they got they got sausage man forge involved and jamie bishop's involved and they don't they're not playing that guy's a serious commitment so go check out my friends over at nordicedge.com i had some nice interactions with my buddy Lawrence Lake over at Maritime Knife Supply. That's maritimeknifesupply.ca. He's into it. He's into the knife making. The guy isn't just like this grabbing. He's not just a snatch and grab guy, man. He is a knife maker, and he is trying to make stuff for. Uh, he started to provide other stuff for knife makers. United States, Canada, it don't matter. He is very quick to figure out your problems and help you get yourself squared away if you need brace of belts he's got them if you need any kind of supplies to get your knife making going he's got them he's involved with damasteel he's involved with broadbeck he's in broad he's involved with all these guys and he is going to make your life easier especially if you're in canada he's the guy to go to noah vashon swears by him and i do too i uh when i buy my belts i get them from him out of out of out of respect. You know what I'm saying? Out of respect. I'm with you. So go to maritimeknifesupply.ca. Get yourself all the knife making equipment you want if you're in the United States or in, in Canada. Don't definitely check out what's going on with maritimeknifesupply.ca. Lawrence, you are the man. I appreciate your message that you this morning. You're a nice guy. You're very thoughtful and you're a nice guy. And I appreciate it. And anytime you buy something from him, he sends, puts a couple mints in there because your breath's no good. You know what I'm saying? He's saying your breath's no good. So fix your breath. Go get yourself some more maritime knife supply. 
Speaking of, I was going to say speaking of bad breath, but I wouldn't know and not going there. Guys, go to Stable Rail Knife Finish. Get the Stable Rail Knife Finishing Advice from Trojan Horse Forge. Sam and Jeff are doing it, man. They're doing it, and they're making this great. This is advice for you if you're into knife making, hand sanding, finishing your handles, whatever it takes. Get yourself involved with that extra special stable rail knife finishing vice and if you got a little bit of if you're trying to figure out how you're you're gluing on your handles on your hidden tang knife go get yourself one of them handle press attachments and and while you're at it get some of that t4 sentinel oil i've been using the t4 sentinel oil on all my uh blades uh especially the carbon ones uh even the ab aebl i don't i don't trust this humidity sometimes so i if I'm something's going on for a long time, I throw in a little bit of that T4 Sentinel oil. It keeps it all squared away. All my friction folders that went out, I use the T4 Sentinel oil. So definitely check out those guys over at TrojanHorseForge.com. And if you put in the promo code FULLBLAST10, you get 10% off of everything. So why don't you get yourself a couple vices, a couple press attachments, get a couple cases of T4 Sentinel oil, and tell them Jeff sent you. You know what I'm saying? Do that for I want you to plant the flag of, of, of commerce for me. So that's that. Speaking of which, my brothers over at Baker Fortune Tool are at it again, man. You want to get some of that special special. You want to get that steel that's got all sorts of stuff going on. You want the exotic stuff, the copper mascus, the bronze mine, the tiger mine, the all that stuff you go to Baker Forge and Tool or bakerforge.com and let me tell you something let me tell you something it it's 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 the best part about it and i've been using it now for over a year and i he sent me some a couple years ago and then i used it and he sent me some more i used it i've been and it's it's like it's consistent it's consistent and it's good it's worth the money cuz these guys are once again another small business where there's are craftsmen making this steel it isn't going through a machine and you press the button and it shows up these guys are sitting on that power hammer and they're and they're cranking out some amazing stuff and it's easy to work with comes annealed it's ready to it's, the heat treating is all easy it's 80 crv2 which is nothing to write home about heat treating they even walk you through how to heat treat it and when you get to the etching part get yourself some of that gator piss back to 2024 guys get that gator piss stop playing get yourself some of that gator piss and uh it's great etching i've been using the gator piss for uh all any kind of damascus i ever have i've used it for damasteel all that stuff definitely get yourself some of that gator piss at uh, tro uh at uh, bakerforge.com and if you put in the promo code Full blast, you get 10% off. And if you're in the EU, my boy, my boy Matt Bickers over at DIY Europe, he's got the the he's got the gator piss for you. So go get yourself some of that gator piss over at DIY Europe. Stop playing. I'm with you. Check it out. I mean you all no one talks about etchant like they do gator piss. And it, the name he did a good job with the name. And some people don't like it, but at the same time, it's like who the fuck is talking about fucking etchant? Nobody, except for Gator Piss, because it's the best, and stuff really works. And you got guys who are really great knife makers who are swearing by it. And a mediocre ones like me, I'm swearing by it too. All right, I'm with you. I'm with you. Full Blast 10, get you 10% off. Uh, I want to thank my brother and sister and friends, family, whatever. Actually, let's take it back. I want to talk. I want to thank my friends over at Total Boat, totalboat.com slash Full Blast will get you a, a uh it will get you to a 
uh, code, I guess it'll, that's the pathway to getting me a little bit of a buck or, buck or two and giving them, giving me a little bit of street cred with the, my boys at Tover Total Boat. I've been using the Total Boat epoxy for, for a long time now on handle scales, and I really, really like it. Very intuitive to use. I also like their UV Cure. Uh, 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 it's a, it's like a it's like a it's a UV cure. It's it comes out like in a squeeze bottle, like crazy glue, and then you have this activator, which is a, like a UV flashlight, and stuff is awesome for little tiny cracks and stuff, or something you need to fill, you need to move fast, you don't want to use the, uh, you know, the crazy glue with that activator. This stuff is the stuff for you. So go to totalboat.com/slash/fullblast. I'm with you. Um, I've been just put together a uh, one of my rehandled spatulas with the GL Hansen and Sons uh, G Carta. Go to gcarta.bigcartel.com for some of that G Carta, and you'll say to me, "What's G Carta?" Well, it's a unique composite of natural fibers and fabrics mixed with epoxy under pressure and heat. This stuff is like cross-cut my Carta, and he folds. I don't know how he does it, but he folds over the fabric and then he impregnates it with the resin and then he cross cuts it like a loaf. And you end up with this really great stuff and it's really cool to work with. And I really like it very much. Get some of that Bofa, Ripple Cut, Tuxedo by Mikey, Mahi Mahi, Radio Worm G Carta, Pheasant by Mikey, Colorama by Mikey, Hoopla by Mikey. Get you, put some razzle dazzle in your life. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? I'm with you. I'm with you. You're with me. I'm with you. Definitely check it out. It's stuff is really cool and it makes great handle material for sure. And even even if you didn't want to use it for just for the entire handle, you want to use it for a little segment or stuff. Stuff's awesome. Definitely check out gcarta.bigcartel.com. All these all these codes are in the show notes of wherever you're getting this. So you can go direct in their hyperlinks. Go direct. Stop playing. And last but not least, I want to thank my friends at Tormac. Celebrating 50 years in business with the black T8 sharpening, water cool sharpening system, Tormek.com, at sharp, uh, Tormek underscore sharpening on Instagram. I love the Tormek. I am a fan of the Tormek. I have been using the Tormeks. Now I have three of them, and I they have changed the way I make knives. They're consistent. They're not, they don't take off too much material. They're very intuitive. If you want training wheels and then use the jigs, go ahead. If you want to free ball it like I do, go ahead. It's great. And they're great. And I really love these pieces of equipment. And Tormac has made me a better knife maker by far. No question. There is no question that Tormac has made me a better knife maker. That's it. Period. End of sentence. I mean, and I swear by him and you're getting a really high quality piece of equipment and you are take, it's just the same, the right amount of time. It's just the right amount of material and you're getting exact, exact, um, I don't have people giving me problems because of the way my knives are sharpened and it's because I'm using Tormac. So thank you to them. And I'm going to preemptively thank my friend, Brian house. He's going to send me something and we're going to use it and we're going to talk about it and I'm going to help him because Brian house, my guy, Brian house is my guy. And I'm looking forward to getting what he's sending. I'll tell you all about it when I use it for a little bit and we're going to get, and it is not the forge. It's something else. I know I'm not, I don't, Trust me, trust me, trust me. Go, you're going to go to housemade.us, check out what he's got going on. He's trying to help me, makers. I'm with you. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back to me because this is, I was trying to figure out what this was going to be. And I took the week off between Christmas and New Year's. And then I was just like, you know what? 
nobody's going to listen to a podcast the week after. And I'm enjoying this time off. So I took last week off too. And boy, did I, so much happened. And I'm trying to, and throughout the whole time, I'm trying to think, well, what am I, how am I going to come back? How am I going to come back to this? How am I going to come back to this? And how can we come back to the, the Full Blast podcast, the first show of the year? And I wanted to kind of just like, once in a while, I like to do one by myself, just to kind of like, just a little fresh air. We're going to go, we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to fuck around a little bit. I'm going to tell a little stories here and there. I'm going to do some weird news at the end. I might do this more often just because it's a little bit more fun for me. It's a little bit more fun. No, having guests is fun, but this is just like a little change of pace and it ain't going to be me being Gary V Jr. Don't worry about that. I'm not going to fucking tell you how to live your life. I'm not, I'm not going to espouse something that I don't believe in myself. I'm not going to, I'm just going to fuck around or tell some stories and then we're going to leave you alone. We're going to keep you company though. We're going to keep you company. But it was, it was interesting because... I was thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to, what am I going to do? I'm just going to come back in the beginning of the year. Am I going to do the resolution show? No, we're not going to do the resolution show. I am going to, so we decided, I decided we, it's me. No one's helping me. Trust the people at Fader Knives are doing no help. Nobody helps me for this. Nobody offers to help me for this. Nor do they help me at Knife Talk, for, for frankly. So it's like, I, when I say we, I'm, t- I'm, I'm tr- I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So I basically thought, I was like, well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to call this the State of the Union. We're going to, the State of the Union of Full Blast Podcast. And we're going to discuss, I'm going to, we are, you aren't doing shit. You're listening. So just listen, just do your thing. Do me a favor. Just concentrate on what you're doing or not. But just you listen, okay? So what I thought I would do was I would just do a little bit of, Welcome aboard to the full. If this is the first time you're hearing this podcast, I'm going to do a little explanation. We're going to do a little reintroduction. We're going to talk about a couple things that happened to me. We're going to do. A, I had a little bit of a couple mental breakthroughs that I'm going to t- tell you about, and I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. I'm not going to give you advice that should be on a poster in the bathroom or a break room. I'm not going to give you inspirational quotes. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. I'm going to tell you what I've done lately, recently, and then have it with what you will. Take it what you will, okay? I'm starting to ramble a little bit, but we're going to get there. Don't worry about that. There might be burping too, so just be aware. There might be burping. Well, I'm not going to tell you when it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So I was thinking about Brian House. I've been kind of talking with Brian House lately, and... One of the things I had, I had him on, uh, well, I say lately, I was talking today. <coughs> Sorry, I told you. <coughs> I told, All right, we're okay now. I told you. Let's just relax. This is the first show of the year. Give me a break. State of the Union. State of the Union. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the President of the United States gets up and says, I want to say the Union. That's what we did today. So Brian was on the podcast a couple, you know, a month or so ago. Something like that. And we were talking about stuff and he said to me, he made the point that, uh, well, he made the, the, he had the idea that maybe since the, my start of in social media and knife making that changed my life. And I was just, if you listen back to it, he's, he's got this, you can tell, you can tell in his voice, he's got this nugget and he's going to lay it on me. 
And then I'm just going to be like, you know what, Brian, you were right. The fact remains is when he asked me the question, he said, when you started knife making and you started Instagram and stuff like that, did it change your life? And I said, not really. But then I was just like, eh. He's like, well, then he it was very, it was a complicated question. And a lot of the reason why it's complicated is because there's been so much in my life to get me to Fader Knives. And, we, you know, we're in the, I think I'm in the 10th year knife making. I don't, really pay, I don't really count, but this is like the seventh or eighth year of being in business business. Like before it was just like, you know, shh, money under the couch kind of stuff. Now it's like, you know, we're paying, you know, the New York State and all that, all sorts of stuff. So I wanted to kind of like do a little bit of a retrospective, quick re retrospective and talk about, we're going to talk about the little bit of the beginnings and really what happened and where, you know, how we got here. I want to talk a little bit about what happened over Christmas and then we're going to do some weird news and get the fuck out of here and leave you alone. So when I was a kid, my father was a painter and he was also in the real estate and he was a winemaker. He was very talented, very talented guy amazing painter he was uh in the in world war ii he was a uh he was a in the air force in world war ii older guy he's actually right now i'm 50 if he was alive he would be 100 we're 50 years apart which is bananas totally bananas but he was uh he was the beneficiary of the gi bill he ended up going to art school went to parsons school of design he also studied in france he was an awesome painter and and regardless of my you know my relationship with him he, of the painters that I've met and known through the years, he is still probably my favorite painter, my favorite oil painter uh, and acrylic painter. He just had a style about him that he was very, his work was mostly, mostly architecture. Uh, he did, it's funny because he did landscapes, but they were all cityscapes. So it would be the, the view of a city down a street. So it was really pretty, quite amazing. And it wasn't, you know, it was, they were really beautiful. There were these beautiful paintings and he was really into the spontaneity of the brushstroke. He was the interest, interested in the mark of the palette knife. He, he wasn't one of these guys with the micro, you know, the tiny, tiny paintbrush and like, uh, you know, the spectacles and just doing these like ultra realistic. He allowed things to be the, he allowed things to be. And he just, you know, there was like, like a, some art people would call it naivete, but I don't think that's really true. I don't think that's even fair. I, but I think that there was the ability to allow the humanity really what it came down to. The awesome painter growing up, he had an amazing workshop. He was a woodworker too. He did sculpture. He made this giant life-sized uh, rocking horse for me that was like a giant wooden pony and it was pretty amazing. And he was a talented guy and stuff like that. So when I was younger, you know, we would, I would do a little drawing, but he wasn't a good teacher. He wasn't good at like showing you how to do things. He was really kind of, part of it is because I think that he really didn't, growing up, he really wanted me and my sisters at a certain level. And I don't think he ever liked the idea of his children being better at, at him, than him at certain things. So I think that that's one of the ultimate reasons why we didn't get as much like love from him or information or whatever, stuff like that. So while he was a painter and doing all this other things and you, there's his paintings are all over the house and they were really pretty amazing. 
And when I was younger, I'd go to my friend's house and we would, you know, or my friends, there was a TV show on called um, A Tour of Duty. And it was like right after the movie Platoon came out and it was like this serial TV show where it was set in Vietnam during the Vietnam War and these American GIs are going, it was like basically Platoon all the time. So my friends and I would watch it and we were young. It was like, you know, whatever. I don't even remember. It was in the early 80s. And we would go to one friend's house and then we'd all bring our, you know, everybody would bring their guns and we would go on these like into the woods. I mean, fake guns, toy guns and BB guns and all that. And we would, we would do patrols like they did in, you know, in tour of duty and everybody would bring their own stuff and they, and I didn't have anything. I didn't have any toy guns and I didn't have any BB guns and I, I had to carry a goddamn stick all the time. Everyone had the BB guns and the, you know, the fake guns and look like real fucking guns. These guys look like, they were children, but we all look, they all look like soldiers as children, obviously, and I'm carrying a fucking stick. I look like a dork, you know, and it was just like, it was just so embarrassing. And I would ask, ask a friend, he said, can I borrow one of your toy guns for patrol? It was just like, ugh. So I remember my, I remember coming up to my dad and saying, hey, dad, I'd really like to get this toy gun. Is it possible? Or a BB gun or something like that. And he says, no guns in the house. He says, I don't want any guns in the house. You're not allowed, you know, I'm not getting any toy guns. That's the end of it. And he was a World War II veteran. He was also a gun owner, and he, but he was very like, you know, frankly, I don't even know what the fuck, what the big deal was. But I, I mean, I think he had a very opinion in regards to it. And um, so I, uh, pardon me. So what I did was I, I, well, I was like kind of begging him a lot, and um, he just said to me, he said. Well, you know what? Well, here's what we'll do. Here's what we'll do. If if you come with me into the shop, I'll show you how to make. I'll show you how to make whatever you want. And once you can do that, once you once I show you how you can make anything you want, you make whatever you want. You want to make a toy gun, you make a toy gun. You could do it yourself. So he brought me into his shop. He showed me um, his uh, bandsaw and the sanders and all the different tools. He showed me how to use the bandsaw and he sent, he sent me out to kind of do my thing. Well, he gave me safety advice and this, that, the other thing. And, um, I just did my thing. First, I made a little helicopter and then I made this and I made that and I made this and that. And then I started making it. And then I drew out pistols and I asked him how to show me how to cut them out on the bandsaw. And then finally, now I'm probably like 11, 10 or 11. And then there, everything is becoming kind of more complicated, not complicated, but they're becoming more uh, intricate. And as they, uh, they progress, you know, from six shooters to this, to that, the other thing, I'm starting to kind of like, you start to see this progression. And the progression is, is I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to get better. And one of the things I'm trying to get better at is, is the process in and of itself. So after, you know, enough time on the bandsaw that I felt very comfortable with it and stuff like that, I started to make this big, bigger project. I was, I became, all of a sudden I wasn't as interested in hanging out with my friends as I was kind of completing these projects. And the last thing I made was this incredible rifle. 
And I say incredible because I was, it was really like, it was a lofty goal. I had the stock and then I found some PVC pipe and then I screwed the pipe to the top of the wood and I made it like a rifle and then I got a bigger piece of PVC pipe and I screwed that on and then I drilled holes and made like a kind of a crosshair and I made like, a, basically I made a sniper rifle or what my opinion of a sniper rifle was. And there was like a walnut handle, I mean, trigger and the trigger guard and all this stuff like that. And at the time I was just like, I was into the fact that I made it, I got it done. And I'll never forget, my father really wasn't one for giving compliments. And I just remember, I just remember him being really into it. And he wasn't a gun guy, but it was just like, he was into the fact that I figured this thing out. And the real part of it hall was and I, I hadn't thought about this until this morning i was walking the dogs and trying to think about like where did this all come from where did this all come from and i pinpointed it to this this exact moment my dad had a friend over who was a hunter and he was talking to my to the hunter and stuff like that and i hear him say jeff jeff bring back that bring down that bring down that sniper right bring down that rifle you made and i'm i don't know why i mean you never really showed that much interest I bring it down and I hand it to him and his friend, the hunter's there. And he, he looks at the, my friend and he goes, look what my kid made. And he showed it, he showed this professional hunter. And this guy wasn't like a fucking, this guy was like a, a German hunter who was like a fucking rifle dude. He was like a real, real, you know, big mocker hunter, you know, international hunter and stuff like that. And my dad was like, take a look at this. And he showed it to this guy and the guy was like looking at it and he was looking at me and he was chuckling and stuff like that. But my dad was like, he was so proud of it. He was so proud of something that I did without his help. And I just remember this moment of just being like, wow, I'm finally getting like some weird unsolicited appreciation from my father. And he just was like really proud of it. And he was proud of the fact that I got it, figured it out. And I think that that was his own pride in me on how to figure out how to do something. And this to this morning was the first time I kind of really thought that that is the pinpoint part of my life where things changed. And it, was, it wasn't just like making, in the beginning, it was making this stuff for me to fuck around with my friends and try not to look too much of a dork, even though, you know, they had the good BB guns and I'm walking around with this fucking plywood pistol. It's so stupid. But at the same time, it was just like, that's the best I can do to the point where my dad is showing off the stuff that I make to guys who are like gun guys. And that is 100% this kind of butterfly effect on where I started to kind of need this sense. I really, honestly, it was needing the sense of, it was needing the sense of validation. It was validation and love for my old man. And I was also thinking about if you listen to, uh, if you listen to knife talk, even if you don't listen to knife talk, it's the other podcast I'm on. There's an episode we do every year called the all beef review. And you don't have to know about anything about knives. And basically what it is, is, is it's, um, Basically, we have every year, this is the sixth annual All Beef Review, and we have the listeners write in their beefs or their problems or their struggles or or like whatever they're irritated about. And it's always some lighthearted shit. It's really nothing to, to kind of get, you know, not real smoke. It's not really wild. And one guy was saying that he one of his beefs is with Elf on the Shelf. And I had made this joke. I said, well, ah, you know what? This goddamn Elf on the Shelf is going to contribute to your ch children's weird proclivities. 
and we were laughing and stuff like that. But at the same time, it really is amazing how that one little simple thing with my father and, and I just making this thing that he, he was a tough guy, really tough. He didn't give compliments easily. He never really said, I love you. Neither do my sisters. They're, they're very like cold people and they're very, you know, their respect is something that you don't even earn. You, you know, like there's like this kind of, you know, it's, there's a creepy quality to it all. And this isn't very loving for sure. But one of the things I mean, that was a high point for me. It was unsolicited appreciation of the stuff that I was doing to a friend. He was bragging to his friend about something that I made. And I think that that set me down the road of, you know, wanting the love and admiration from someone that not only my father, but like the guy who I really, as a young person, saw as incredibly talented woodworker, incredibly talented painter. And I really, you know, that was it. I mean, that was like, that was the you know, the, the early start of me wanting to become a sculptor and ultimately becoming a knife maker. And I just remember that was, that was the moment. And throughout my high school years and stuff like that, I would do a lot of woodworking projects. They were all bullshit stuff, but at the same time I enjoyed them. I did some painting with my father. He didn't really teach me how to paint, but I painted with him and he would just kind of take the paintbrush out of my hand and fix something. And I was like, that's the best part of the painting. And that would annoy me and stuff like that. And then, but it was this idea, I was, a, you know, m like most of the listeners of this podcast or most of the, I mean, don't be offended if I said it, but a lot of makers in general, there is this like lack, not really doing well in school and, you know, learning disabilities and all that. And I, it was something for me to be able to make something that somebody actually liked. It was, that was the rush that I got. So when I went to college, I wanted to be a painter. I thought I was going to be a painter. Like I thought I can be as the genetics are there that I can be as good a painter as my dad. I've been around painters for such a long time. My sister is a painter. I've been around painters my whole life. It's in the DNA. I just need some direction. My dad didn't give me any direction. He would take the paintbrush out of my hand and fix a thing. And I was just like, God damn it. You didn't tell me what you did. Go to school, end up becoming, can't get into any painting classes, ended up getting into sculpture classes. And I just kind of like went back to the old days of me making like guns in my dad's, you know, wooden guns in my dad's shop. And it was the creating things and being comfortable using tools. And then what it ended up, be, what it ended up happening was I was interested in the welding. I was doing a mostly metal work. And part of it was because woodworkers were all waiting in line for the bandsaws and you couldn't really get into the woodworking stuff and the metal was easier to get to and there weren't any lines for the welders and my friend Dan Levine I'll never forget he said to me he's like come over here to wait for glue to dry kid I'm gonna show you how to weld get involved with metalworking and then we had this class we had this class and at the time you know especially considering I really didn't have a direction. This was an, you know, I really did. I wanted to go to art school, but my father, my mother and father wanted me to go to something where I was a little bit more rounded. And I don't think my father wanted me to be an artist anyway. I know he didn't. So I really tried to, you got to find yourself. And part of it was, is like sometimes finding yourself is, you know, it's not just something you say, I need this. It's something kind of like stumble, you stumble upon something. So we did this class where we had to take something small. It was a sculpture class. We had to take something small and make it big. So I was at the time, 
the first sculpture I ever sold was to a teacher and he says, I'll give you 200 bucks and then you can fish in my, on my property whenever you want. He, my friends and I were big into fishing. We we're in, in Ohio. The fishing was really awesome. So we would fish all the time. So I was constantly buying fishing lures. And I was like, well, what am I going to make small that make that I want to make big? And I was like, I'll make this, I'll make a Rapala, which is a small rattle with a small lure. And the first one I made was really awesome. And it was really cool. And then next thing you know, I sent a, I sent a, I think I sent a, I don't know, this is before the internet. So I don't think I emailed a picture. I, I know I didn't email a picture. But somehow my family saw it and my, a friend of my uncle's wanted one. And then next thing you know, I, I'm, I'm making another one and then I'm making another. And that's the other thing about making art is like you find something that you like. It's just like, let's in, investigate this. Let's just try to keep going. So I was making more and I was making more and I was selling them, which is bizarre for a, you know, 19 year old college kid is not really something you do 19 20 year old you're not really doing that you're in art school and no one's really give a shit about your work and i found myself in this position of making something that became much more commercially valuable now the crazy thing was is and i say that because my art teachers weren't into it they weren't i was just like even for the even for like when i got to become a senior i started making the lures when i was a sophomore when i was like i guess i was like 19 or 20 and my teachers were just like, this is the best. You know, they thought it was too gimmicky. They thought they really didn't think it was serious art. And I was kind of pushed away from it. And the crazy thing is, is this is the beginning of um, not being believed in by my teacher. My teachers didn't really believe in what I wanted to do. Like I was, I was my senior project was going to do this giant wall of lures, big, giant wooden lures painted with hooks and stuff. And my teacher kind of like, my advisor was just like, this isn't really for you and this is a little too commercial and I really want you to stretch yourself. And I ended up doing something that I really regretted and I really should have listened to myself. But once again, it was, it took me, you know, another 25 years before I realized that I should have stuck to my guns. So the lures were one of these things I was doing on the side. I was doing on the summers. I was, I was like, you know, selling them. And then once I graduated from college, I'd been making lures for like three years. And then I was going to these events. I was going to these uh, fishing, hunting and fishing club events. And then I was bringing lures with me and then I was selling them. I was selling them 300 bucks here, 200 bucks here, 400 bucks here. And I was selling these giant fishing lure sculptures like well, like consistently. And I got to the point where I was just like, okay, well, maybe it's not serious art, but at the same time... I like them. I like making them that were a lot of fun to do. And maybe they could be, I could do better than just doing this on my own. I was one of the reasons I had a, at the time after I graduated college, I had, a, I had a studio in, in Brooklyn and uh, with my, my roommate, my college roommate, my, um, Jamie Montgomery, he was a sculptor. We were kind of doing like sculpture stuff together, but at the same time I was trying to do these lures and a lot of it was because they were so colorful and I was in this welding shop and it was nice to have this bright color in this welding shop. And I just remember, I just remember trying to figure something out. And my wife, my girlfriend at the time, Hillary, she says, you know, you should be in a gallery because you're, you're making these sculptures you're bringing them to events or people are buying them or people commissioning you or I'm, I'm selling them. As I was making them, somebody would stumble upon a friend of my father's or friend of my mother's and friend of somebody. And or I get a phone call. Hey, I hear you're making these because I wasn't getting emails at the time. There weren't emails. And I just remember being like, this is 
this is a commercial thing. I'm selling them consistently. So my wife had this great idea. She says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to make a wall, a giant wall. And the problem with the problem with these giant lures was is you need scale in a picture. Otherwise, people just think it's a fucking lure. So my wife said, you're going to do a giant wall. We had a, I had a big white wall in my shop. Now, you know what? I'll use it for the, I'll use it for the, if you go to uh, Instagram and you go to the Full Blast podcast on Instagram, I'll use this as the cover for this issue. And it was a big white wall. And I want you to hang up all these, hang up all these lures. And then you're going to get it professionally photographed with you in it. So my friend Big Lee came into the shop and I stood there and... Well, at first, we were, I didn't stand there. And he says, get in there. You got to show some scale. So there's a, the picture. If you go to Full Blast Podcast on Instagram, there's this This episode will have the cover of me in front of this wall for all the giant lures. So we took this picture. My wife had this idea. She says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get postcards made. Because this is pre-internet, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen. This is 1996, 97. And we're going to make postcards. We're going to find galleries. And we're going to we're going to send these all out to all these galleries. And what was interesting was it became, you know, I think I ordered like a hundred, hundred and fifty or two hundred of these postcards. We found all these galleries all over the country. We stuck the photograph on, we had my information on the back, and we just sent them out like a just like I mean a mass it, it was kind of like pre it was the pre social media I was trying to cast the net out and say hey listen maybe my lures will be good for your shop so I did get a couple messages one was one was for a gallery in Jackson Wyoming and they had me sent me some I had me I they asked me to send some slides they sent some slides and then I, after I sent some slides, they said, well, why don't you send a couple of these lure sculptures? We'll put them up and then we'll see how they go. We send them some lure sculptures. And next thing you know, after a month or two, I hadn't forgot. I thought about, forgot about it. A, a check came. They sold two sculptures. And then they said, send two more. And then I had a gallery in Jackson Hole, Wyoming that was selling sculpture and I was getting checks. It was like, you're talking 1997, 98. I am like, I have a gallery that's selling my work regularly. Like I sold probably seven or eight. No, 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 no. I've sold closer to 10 sculptures over the years with this with this gallery. Then I had another sculpture, and then another gallery in New York, and that was pretty cool. They sold one sculpture, but it was still like a Park Avenue gallery, and it was that was pretty cool. And then I had a terrible experience. There was a gallery, there was a broker who reached out to me from San Francisco and they were going to give me a solo show and this, that, the other thing. They loved the stuff. They, I sent them slides. They loved the slides. Then that, they had them send me the sculptures. I didn't hear from them. They were telling me it's going to be this big opening and there's going to be food and a band and talking, we're talking pre 9-11s is still pre 2000s, 1990. I don't know what the fuck it was. And, um, I know I remember coming home from the shop and there was a note on my door saying there's a giant package at UPS that you need to pick up. And the UPS was across. I was on 14th and first. My wife and I had an apartment on 14th and first. I had a bicycle all the way across to the West side. And this, there was this giant box and I opened the box up and it was all the sculptures from this gallery. 
and they weren't packed right. They weren't. Sh- they were just like thrown in a box of paper. And I pulled out my cell phone, which was like a brick block, and I called them up. Like, what is going on? What happened? What happened? And the guy lit me up. He says, I don't know what you were thinking. And this isn't sculpture. And this is, I don't know why we even thought about this would be good, good idea. And you should, he just started fucking terror, terrorizing me and just like, this is not our, what we expected. And we have a higher opinion of what we want to do. And he, he just tore me up and just belittled me. And I'm standing there and I'm trying to figure out how am I going to get all these giant lures from my home. And I didn't understand. I just didn't understand. I sent you the the I said I sent you the slides. You like the slides? And he goes, Well, you know, pictures only tell you so much. It was fucking terrible. And what made it worse was I had to figure out how to get this goddamn stuff home with my bike. So I took all the lures, I took them all the hooks, I put them on the on the handlebars of my bicycle, and I bicycled them all the way back home. And they were like dragging on the ground and I was like Hillary came home and she goes what's wrong and I told her the whole story and I I was I was so he, not only was I rejected but I was insulted don't you shouldn't be making sculpture anymore and this is an art this is bullshit and you're a piece of shit and I can't believe you hornswoggled us like this it was like everything was just like oh it turned out that the guy was a broker and he was just doing this for a lot of I imagine a lot of people were getting this and then the galleries were liking it or they weren't liking it but he was a broker he wasn't even a gallerist it was torture total torture but, would, you know, it was hard, but at the same time, you know, you, th- th- it was my first real rejection in a vicious way. It was totally, like, out of the... And the guy whose name was Pierre. I'll never forget this fucking guy. And I'll never forget feeling this incredible rejection. And it was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I can't trust that it's, everything's going to be okay. And what if I send stuff again? And, and I just remember being like... I remember the just how hard it was, and I remember how unfair it was, and I just couldn't understand why somebody would be so cruel. And it was sucked. It sucked. But I, I remember going back to you know what I was doing at the same time. At the time, I was making sculpture, but I was also hustling. I was hustling uh, for other artists. I was hustling for myself. Uh, I was doing a lot of um, side hustle fabrications for other artists and stuff like that. And I remember just being, I mean, it was so fucking bad. I mean, I, even thinking about it now, I was just like devastated. It was just like a devastation that I wasn't prepared for. I was not prepared to be humiliated like that and stuff like that. It was the exact opposite of like my dad showing that toy gun to his friend and saying, look what my kid did. It was just like, oh, you are a piece of shit. And it took me a while to get past it. But, you know, we then we had other things and then... The Wyoming Gallery had changed uh, management and they decided to kind of change gears in regards to the kind of way they were going. I mean, I was a fucking earner for them. I mean, they sold like 10 of my sculptures over the years, which was, you know, what's wrong with that? And they just all of a sudden one day they sent my work back saying, you know, we appreciate it. We're we're changing directions and thank you for all your service. And then the gallery and in our park avenue decided to say, all right well we've had enough of your work and come get it so there was a lot of like rejection i never stopped I, what are you gonna do so you know it takes a while to kind of like figure out what you're gonna do and over time the lures you know evolved slowly and slowly slowly i would i would have these problems that people didn't like the hooks because they thought the hooks were dangerous which is kind of the point of these goddamn things but at the same time it was like 
I was starting to make more lures without the hooks and all of a sudden didn't seem like you needed the hooks and then the shapes would change and the colors would change and then the direction would change. But it was this slow evolution towards really finding shapes and colors and, 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 and um, figuring out ways in which to make the colors vibrate off each other to kind of give the illusion of movement. And I remember years later, you know, I was in the restaurant game for a while and then I went back into the sculpture game for a while and then I ended up getting a fabrication job at the Center for Metal Arts when it was in uh, um, Florida, New York and it was before Pat Quinn was involved. And I remember kind of learning different types of fabrication and that's where I kind of got involved with um, blacksmithing. That's where I, I mean, I was, a I was paid to be a fabricator. I'd done enough, you know, uh, fabrication for sculptors that I was good enough for them. I just learned everything from them in terms of like, it was the backwards education. I and mean, when you're first learning as a sculptor, you're learning kind of like there are no rules and you just kind of do whatever it takes. And then I ended up going to these fabrication shops that were very specific where all of a sudden you had all you, you had to have a degree of discipline, you know? And I remember with the sculptures, the sculptures kept on going. I still, especially Christmas time, I would get, calls and you know as you know time went on and the internet moved and all of a sudden i had a website and the next thing you know i'm getting emails from people saying hey do you think you get some i could get some presents for some friends and i have this fishing friend for christmas and i started i was every christmas i was making these lures and then i remember i remember getting involved with these galleries and i helped not only uh, curate some shows, but I helped kind of like do my own work. I got involved with a gallery and a museum in this, uh, we got involved with this, uh, postgraduate critique program with other artists and stuff like that. And I kept on going with the sculpt, we kept on going with the lures. And I was, at the time I was, I had a job, fabrication shops and, but I was at night, I was going to these, you know, postgraduate critiques and we were talking about art and talking about sculpture and stuff like that. And the lures were definitely make, you know, they, they never left. And I kept on kind of evolving them to make them a little bit less, I hate to say kitschy, but I mean, that's what I, people were saying. I mean, that's where artists were saying. And even, I had, people weren't even saying it was art. They were just being like, this is just some, you know, commercial shit. And I never abandoned them and I'll never forget um, really enjoying, just enjoying making them and thinking to myself, well, if I enjoy making them, then that's good enough for anybody. And if it's good enough for anybody, it's good enough for me. So I kept on going and then I remember having this conversation with this bronze caster and this bronze caster said, ah, you know what, you know, I know you do all this welding and all this metal woodwork, but what I can do is I can do multiples. And I can just, you know, do knock out a couple molds. And if I'm doing bronze, I make a couple extra molds and I can just do the same thing over and over again. And I can make twice the amount of, I can make whatever, ten, four times the amount of money if I make four sculptures instead of one. And I was like, well, fuck you. I'm going to make, I'm going to make um, 60 of the exact same sculpture. And I'm going to do, I'm going to carve them all by hand. I'm going to paint them all by hand. And I'm going to make a sculpture and, and it's going to be to, to, in spite of you, in spite of this idea of like fast, easy ways. And I embarked on this fucking very, I mean, when I say influential, it was influential to me because it was just like, can I get, can I get away with this? And I did this giant sculpture 
was the installation of 60 identical needlefish lures. And actually, if you're in the Peaceville area, you go to Finn and Brew, they're hanging up there. And I basically was just like, I'm make a point that I can do multiples. I can do a giant batch amount. And they're all going to be the same. I'm going to figure out how to do them. And I'm going to make jigs to, to carve them all out. And I'm going to make jigs to figure out how I'm going to paint them. And then I did it. And it took me about two months. And it was like fucking madness. And the reason why it was because it was at the time I was working for all these metal shops and we were doing all this, you know, drill a hole 9,000 times. You know, it was like making a thousand pickets. And the idea of how do we kind of, you know, get this down and not everything doesn't have to be this, you know, this beautiful moment. Some of it has to be about consistency and discipline. And then I kind of plugged that into making the sculpture and I made this, I made this batch of lures that they were all the same. I mean, one of them, I mean, you can put, don't put a caliper on them, but at the same time, I mean, they look the same. And when they were installed together, they look like a school of fish and stuff like that. And it was a great sculpture for me, but it was more than that because it was more about like, can I do, can I put myself in this position where I have a certain amount of, uh, a certain amount of time and energy and dedication and discipline? And can I execute that? And can I make this, can I make, can I execute the, the, the idea that I have, even if it's a real big time commitment? And it was, and it was, it was a total success. As far as I was concerned, it was a success. It was the beginning stages of Instagram for me, uh, 15 years ago, 13, 14, 15 years ago or something like that. When it first started, I started to get out of hating the gallery scene. I was involved with a couple galleries that were just, it's like a pimp relationship and you, they just they don't care about you they don't care about your 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 fluctuations they don't care about your your evolutions they want to be able to sell your work and it was really like this very very it was a very disgusting point and it reminded me of when i was dealing with this this broker who just totally ruined me and everything about it it was just like this sucks social media comes up and then all of a sudden I'm like, well, what if I just start posting, making sculpture? So if you go back into, if you follow Jeff Fader on Instagram, I have a couple of uh, Instagram posts. I have uh, Jeff Fader, G-E-O-F-F-F-E-D-E-R. You can go far back. You can go far back to the beginning stages of Instagram on that. And you can actually see the beginning stages of the lures. And, and you can see the process of like, you know, finding, trying to find who I was, but at the same time, trying to market myself outside of anywhere else. I didn't, I didn't need a gallery. This is like 15 years ago and probably even more. I don't know if it's 15 or more. My kid was very, very young. There's pictures of her as a little child holding these giant lures. And it became this moment where I was hooking up with galleries. I was buying, I was selling stuff online. I was doing those goddamn giveaways. I was very involved with the lure community the lure making community and um i was kind of documenting what i was doing and i was becoming a better artist but at the same time i was like it was the way i was like meeting other people so this is talk 15 years ago it's got to be even more than 15 years ago maybe it was 15 i don't remember what it was but it was a long time ago and that was the really beginning stages of me being like all right well maybe i can do this on my own and i started to document the lures and then I started to document kind of other things that I was doing. I was doing fabrication jobs. And then I was helping my friend, John Ledford, 
uh, he had, we, he and I had this shop called the Hudson River Ironworks and we were trying to teach, teach classes there and it really didn't work out very well. But at the same time, you can see some of the stuff that happened. And then Hudson River Ironworks is where I made my first knife with Matt Paul. You can see that there. And then all of a sudden it was like, I had all these years as a blacksmith fabricator and I thought to myself, I can make these knives. I mean, I used to forge pickets. I used to forge all these complicated forgings big pieces of steel fabrication this is a little light shit and that's kind of where the knife making happened but it wasn't overnight this is the the thing about the whole thing and as i'm building and as i'm making knives i start to like get the heat treatment down i'm getting like how do you do the scales and in the beginning i was everything was like pins and i was when I was pinning everything together, I was trying to rivet them over and then everything was splitting and then I was bruising the G10 and I was like, this sucks. And everything was this short evolution in terms of the decisions that I was making and I was, you can document how you go. You look back, you know, even for fader knives, you look back in the beginning, you can see the beginning knives I've made and everything is this long game amount of discipline and commitment and stuff like that so i was really like i don't think and this is back to what i think a lot of knife makers think that you know you just like flipped a switch and it all it all kind of like started and for me it never really was any difference that's why when people ask me how long you've been full-time i don't remember real dates i don't remember how many knives i've made i don't remember how many years i've been doing this because to me it was all a continuation of when i was a kid in my shop my dad's shop figuring out how to go from making this plywood revolver to this you know you know sniper rifle it was all everything was this evolution in terms of how you do it so as time goes by and i'm starting to make the knives i'm starting to kind of like go back to fall back to you know, the similarities between the knives and the, the sculpture because the lures were the precursor because they were all the same thing but just slightly different. And the knives were all different variations, but they were the same but just a little bit different. And then all of a sudden I started to find G10 and I find these colors and all of a sudden now I'm finding myself in this position where I'm not really seeing a huge difference in making these lure sculptures and making these knife sculpt these knives i almost said knife sculptures because you know how i feel the knives aren't art so maybe i don't feel like my art is art anyway so maybe that's what it all comes down to so for me it was all this continuation of what i was always was doing and and i think that for me i'm grateful for the fact that I had this kind of long evolution in terms of what I'm doing. I don't see any different. And I remember, you know, when I started to do batches of knives, I remember back in the day when I was doing this giant sculpture of 60 needlefish lures and they were all identical. And I was like finding myself seeing like everything was almost the same. You do this 100 times, you do this 100 times, you do this 100 times. And now all of a sudden I'm really starting to see that it wasn't overnight and it was a long and I wasn't conscious like these things just naturally happened and I found myself doing something that I like to do figuring out how to do it better and figuring out how to make it work and really that's where we are now I mean I, I just it's interesting because it stuck with me when when I was had Brian on and he just basically he was he was just trying to make a point and I think that a lot of people especially 
on social media or knife makers or makers in general, they just, they just assume that it is going to be a flip. There's a flip the switch situation. Everything's hard. Everything's the long game. Everything is, is what it takes to make, you know, to, uh, to figure out how you're going to get things done. And for me, I don't really see this. I don't really see this overnight thing. I mean, I see, see it that I was lucky and I came at a certain age where I was able to accept the internet generation X. We were all kind of like, we were born before the internet. And then we kind of got into the internet, you know, as we got a little bit on the older side, we were able to kind of understand, but we weren't too old that we were like, fuck this shit. This is some trendy bullshit. We were able to kind of like harness it at a, at the right age. I was able to become make fader knives after years of doing other things and seeing this logical progression. If I had started fader knives at 20, I don't think I would have done, I wouldn't have been where I'm at now. And a lot of that's just because my experience, it's just the way it is. And I think that I just, I guess what I'm trying to say is for me, I'm grateful for my age. I think it's a, I think it's a real blessing and I think it's a real gift to grow old. We have a lot of friends who've just passed away and I'm grateful for the fact that I'm, you know, that I'm trying to keep myself squared away. But at the same time, I think that a lot of people don't realize that everything is hard. Everything is really hard and you, you, you can't, the overnight sensations don't, are so few and far between and figuring out how to become just one day at a time and just keep fucking going and believing in yourself. And I, the reason why I say that is because I had so many people who did not believe in me and it was such a hard, hard decision to keep going. It was a hard decision to keep going. I remember, I remember my dad's wife was very aggressive towards me. I think that she was very manipulative and she was also very, um, how should I say this? She didn't like me. And she tried to do these things that would make me um, not confident in the decisions that I was making to the point where my dad, I'd see my dad and I see what's going on. I'm like, ah, I'm making sculpture. I got this commission I'm doing for this person, that person. And then she would say, oh, we have, this is just, these are just people that, these are just friends of your mother's. And the only reason why you got them is because you're friends of your mother's. I'm obviously, I'm simplifying it, but it made me feel like I'm lesser than because somebody's doing me a favor. And it, 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 it was, it was, a, it was very difficult for my, for my ego. It was very difficult for me to say, well, maybe I'm not worth it. Maybe they're just trying to be nice and maybe, maybe she's right. And it became very, it became very difficult for me. I also remember there were other people who were very skeptical of what I was doing. I wanted to be a sculptor and well, you can't really do that and you can't really do that. And there was, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of faith. Now there was a ton of faith for my wife. My wife was, uh, a extraordinary, extraordinary. She, from the day we met, she supported me in terms of like, believed she believed in me and that was huge. And, um, but I just know that there were opportunities missed. I'll tell you a funny story. We got, where are we? What are we 58 minutes in Jesus H Christ? I thought I was going to get to all this other stuff. I'm not going to get into it. I'm going to finish this story. We'll do a fucking couple weird news and get the fuck out of here. I was going to tell you about Christmas, but I mean, who gives a shit? It's over. I remember there was a time right before we got married. I had it. My hat still had my studio and I was, you know, I was, 
I was a sculptor. I was working for other artists as a welder. I was making, I was welding up for other uh, sculptors and stuff like that. And I remember I made the decision because there was nervousness in the family in regards to how am I going to marry this woman and I'm just going to be this sculptor kind of hustling for the rest of my life. So I made the conscious decision that I was going to culinary school and I was going to fall into the culinary world. And a part of it is because my dad was in the culinary game and we were involved with this, the Culinary Institute of America and stuff like that. But I was just like, part of me is just like, all right, well, I'm going to show people that I have this degree of, 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 of something, you know, behind me that's a little bit more than... For years, I was doing freelance stuff. I was a sculptor. I was selling my sculpture, but then I was doing these like odd ends and ed, end jobs for money, for the rent, for not only my shop, but for my apartment. And I was making it work, but it was a, it was a struggle. Start to go to culinary school, and then I get a call. I don't remember who it was. I had to get a sample made. A friend of mine through a friend, I got invited to go over to this place called Koenig Ironworks in, in um, Koenig Ironworks. I, I might have mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. Koenig Ironworks was in Long Island City in Queens, and it was the home of one of the great fabrication shops in New York. Uh, a, a giant fabrication. They did erections. <laughs> he did erections, erecting buildings and stuff like that. But they also had a blacksmith shop, and I didn't know anything about it. And there was a guy by the name of Tom Ryan, and he was the lead uh, of the blacksmith shop at Koenig Ironworks. So we had known each other through a friend, and then he invited me to see the shop. And then it was the first time, this is still, we're talking 2000, maybe 1999. First time I'd ever even heard of modern day blacksmiths. The first time I'd ever seen a power hammer. I walked into the shop, and they were making, they had a die, and they were making these, they were making newel posts. And the, on the, the die of the power hammer was a, was a uh, pineapple die. They were making full-scale pineapples on the ends of these newel posts. And it was like fucking madness. And the, it was crashing blows and loud and fire and craziness. And I was just like, and I couldn't believe it. I just, I just didn't compute. I just, didn't, I just couldn't believe it. And I had already made a commitment to go to culinary school. Tom's showing me around and he says to me, why don't you come work for me? And I remember telling him, I remember saying, I'm like, ah, I already committed to culinary school. I'm going to go to culinary school. And he goes, but, you know, I'm offering you a job. Don't go to culinary school. Come work for me. And I was just like, I can't, I can't get involved. I've already made this decision. I can't get involved. And part of it was because people didn't believe in me before. Now, if I had not gone to culinary school, if I had not gone to culinary school, and I walked into Koenig Ironworks and I met Tom Ryan. Tom Ryan offered me a job. I would have had a different life. I would have had a different life. It would have been in the same vein. I would have still been a blacksmith, probably. But I probably would have been a real fabricator, a real fabricator blacksmith in working in Manhattan. That is the one thing in my life. And it come it came from a place that the decision on passing it up came from fear. It came from fear because there was a lot of people who didn't believe in me. And I felt like if I'd gone down that path, it would have been more, you know, wasn't regulated as opposed to everyone breathed this with the exception of my wife. My wife always believed in me. They, they breathed the sigh of relief and I went to culinary school. I ended up working for Charlie Palmer. I was a very, I, I could have been a big wig with him. I ended up going back into sculpture. I ended up, from there, I did a couple of other things and then I ended up going, circ, I circumvented it all and went to the, culinary, the um, 
and went to the Center for Mental Arts. But it is one of those things that I think of like if people had given me confidence and they believed in the decisions that I was making, I probably would have gone to Koenig Ironworks and my life would have been different. It would have been similar. I don't think Fader Knives would have happened. I don't necessarily know if I would have kept doing sculpture. I don't necessarily know how it would have been. I would have been involved with the metalworking community at a much earlier time. I would have been, I probably would have been a much more well-rounded blacksmith by the time I was in my shit. If by the time I was in my early, early twenties, I was already fabricating at 19, but then by my middle twenties, I would have been a, by my middle twenties, I would have been like a, a real New York city blacksmith fabricator. That would have been crazy. And it, a lot of it comes from the fact that the decisions I made were based on not wanting to disappoint me, not wanting to disappoint people, but also because people didn't really believe in me. And then it got to the point where I wasn't confident enough to believe in myself either. <sighs> what can you do, man? What can you do? It's fucking weird. It's weird. I think about it a lot. And I think about Tom Ryan. I haven't talked to him in years. And... Um, I know Pat Quinn knew Tom and there's another, Oh, and you know, the old school blacksmiths, especially in the tri-state area. When you mention Tom Ryan's name, they're like, Oh, you know, fucking Tom Ryan. And he's not an Instagram guy. I don't even know if he's alive, frankly, but it would have been, it would have been something. It would have been, that's the one fork in the road that I made the decision that I made. (sighs) Things would have been different. Things would have been different. I don't know what we would have done. I don't know if we wouldn't have been able to, I would have been, you know, it would have been a job that it would have been a real job and I would have gotten way earlier experience, but I don't necessarily think I would have been involved in teaching. I don't think I would have gotten involved with Uri Hoffi and then the, in the decisions that I've made. It's a crazy thing. It's like one of those things, you know, you think about like if I could time travel and make the decision, how would my life have been? But that decision was based on the fact that I didn't have the confidence to say, yeah, let's do this. And one of the things that I do now as a parent, when I got a 19 year old is what I don't want to do is ever be in a position of making her feel anything other than confident in her decisions. I'm very, very against any type of manipulation. Uh, I lived a life of a very, very tough uh, manipulation that involved people actively trying to uh, belittle me and that belittling and is is completely unconsciously designed to weaken you and when they weaken you they can have control over you so i'm very very conscious of that i'm very i've read so much about manipulation and like people's behavior and stuff like that that i'm like i'm so anti i'm so anti at all and when i one of the things i really wanted to make sure that my daughter had was this feeling of always being confident, confident in the decisions that she's made. I don't do, I don't do, uh, passive aggressive with her. I've never have, I've just wanted to support her and make her feel confident in the decisions that she's made. And that was, it's a big thing. I think about it a lot. If I had been more confident in the decisions that I've made, how things would have been different. I don't think I would have been as, I don't know if I would have been, I frankly, you start to think about it, you don't know. It's like the butterfly effect. It's the butterfly effect. But all I wanted, when I come down to it, was I wanted the I wanted the validation from my father. I wanted the validation from I wanted him. I wanted I wanted my life to be filled with people saying, "Hey, look at this. Look at what Jeff made." 
it's tough, man. It's fucking hard out there. But I, I think that it's real important to, for me, I'm very, very conscious of how I talk, especially to my daughter. All I want her to be is confident. I want her to be confident in the decisions that she makes. I want her to have good thoughts. I don't want her to be, she's not spoiled. And I want her to be able to make good decisions and be confident in the decisions that she makes. So you have it. There you go. Jeff Fader, Fader Knives. And uh, where are we at? 107. Yeah, it was fun. You know, I, it was something that in regards to the state of the union of this of this company, of this business of, of, of Full Blast, I love Full Blast. I love doing it. I got I got people coming in next next week and then weeks after. We're gonna we're gonna ramp it back up. We're gonna keep your ass company for a while. Uh, Fader Knives has been really great in terms of uh, this is something I wanted to talk about for a lot of the makers. I get a lot, especially on Knife Talk. We get a lot of people who ask questions about uh, being in business and how 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 what the growth is supposed to be. And you see these people who are growing at this, you know, this kind of abnormal rate and are you compare yourself to these people and slow and steady wins the race. I'm telling you, I think you got to be confident in what you're doing. I, we have, we have goals in mind and we try to meet those goals. And the crazy part about this year was we had these very specific goals and it wasn't lofty goals. It was like we wanted to get 10% better than last year. And we did that with plus plus, which was great, which was really great. And one of the things we wanted to do was I had this, I had these plans in mind for the, you know, for the week, for the month, for the year. And we met the plans and I was going to take the, the, the week between Christmas and New Year's off. And I saw we had some orders on the, on the order list. And I just spent from Christmas to New Year to get them done. I want to start 2024 with a blank slate. I want a blank slate. And I remember, I remember when it was all done, I sent a message to Allison, Tony, we're all clear. Everything's out. It's 2023. We're ending 2023. We're starting 2024 with a blank slate. We're ready to go. Clean the shop up. I made a hammer. That's what I do at the end of the year, make a hammer. I finished everything up. I got everything squared away. Got home and I had this pit in my stomach and I felt as though I didn't want I didn't want there to be a finality to the year. I wanted continuation. I didn't want this like I reached the destination. Like it was very strange. It was a very strange feeling of we've made it to the destination and I would have preferred continuation. And it was really like it was I also it was hard for me to it would have been hard for me to just get right back to work. So I just kind of worked through the whole the whole Christmas and getting myself ready for this year and blah 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 blah. So enjoy the, I enjoy the journey. I'm not a fan of the destination. The destination doesn't do it for me. Uh, like I said, I got everything done and I'll like, you know, clap my hands, got everything done. And I'm just like, had a pit in my stomach. It was like, it was very anticlimactic. So that was, so, you know, I didn't get back into it. We're starting off strong. Uh, we're sending stuff out. We're, uh, Fader Knives is doing great. We're going to, we're going to have a Christmas party at the end of January because apparently we can't all, none of us can get our dates together we're fine and then uh what else yeah look what are you gonna do it was good so let's we know what we're gonna do we got a message from allison i should i should i, I was gonna talk about that but i figure you know what we'll do we'll finish things off light i hope this wasn't okay 
I uh, I hope this <laughs> I hope this episode was okay. I wanted the State of the Union. It was the State of the Union is strong, so I want to end it with a funny story. So what I thought I would do was, uh, you know, usually when I have Ben Snore here or Ben Camone or a couple other guys, we'll do weird news. I figured I'd hit some weird news, and we'll read a re- weird news story, and then we'll start the year off strong with some weird news. Uh, let's see what we have here. All we have here. Indiana let's do this one (laughs) this is I mean you can't make it up and listen this is for me this is fun fun for me when I was a kid I the radio kept me company and uh you know whatever it takes and uh I was gonna do like uh tell you my uh, inspirations but I ain't gonna do it so this comes from uh, I'm not telling you where this comes from because you're gonna steal my shit here's the story uh Indiana cops find gun drugs hidden in a man's rectum that's right ladies and gentlemen police in indiana have become suspicious when a man in a vehicle pulled over for a stop for a traffic stop was having difficulty walking and spreading his legs during a search of one of the passengers officers with the evansville police department said multiple pills were found in a bag tucked in the man's sock all right According to an affidavit, the man explained the pills were given to him by his aunt for pain relief from a bullet lodged in his spine, which he believed, which he believed were Percocet. When cops asked the man why there were two different pills, the accused replied that his aunt may have mixed them up with another medication. As officers searched his groin area, the man claimed he couldn't spread his legs due to the injury. So he said his back hurt, right? Cops brought the man to jail for further search and noted that he appeared to limp and was clenching his butt while walking. Following a body scan, it's alleged a large object was in his butt. I don't know if that's true reporting, but further search led to locating two bags of a a green leafy substance. The man was lowered to the ground after he was struggling. The cops allege a gun was found in his butt. The affidavit said the man was put in restraint uh, because he was uncooperative, uh, something, something, something. Thirty-two was charged with multiple was multiple intimidation, trafficking, and possession charges. After analysis, cops says the pills contain oxycodone, uh, hydrochloride, uh, and legal narcotic, and one of the pills also tested positive for fentanyl. The leafy substance tested positive for THC. Police said he had an extensive criminal history in Chicago dating back to uh, 2011, which prohibited him from having possessing a gun. So where do we start? Man, I, I, number one, drugs are bad. <laughs> drugs are bad. And they're especially bad, most likely, if they've been smuggled in someone's butt. I the butt smuggling stuff is always been fascinating to me because you have to go down a certain road in your life when you can get to the point where you can put anything into your ass especially pills drugs guns it's a uh, fucking crazy. Uh, I think uh, uh, Honor called it his prison wallet. God damn it, the prison wallet. I the the whole the whole the crazy. I love smuggling stories. When I have um, Nico on, I'll take a smuggling story over everything. But I just wonder when you decide 
to put things in your ass. That's the issue. So the guy's driving the car with someone else. They're going to go down the street. They know that they're carrying drugs and a gun. What what time do you start? When do you put the drugs and the gun in your on your asshole and then and then start driving? That's the real crazy story. All right, let's just say you're at your friend's house and you're gonna go. Maybe you you maybe you get your drugs at the your drugs at your at this guy's house, and you know that you're obviously the guy's gonna traffic the drugs. So maybe he knows that he's got a you know a criminal history. Maybe his car's no good. Maybe it, he knows that he's gonna get popped. There's just no way he's just gonna keep it in his pocket. Obviously, he's gotten he's gotten got before. When do you make the, the conscious decision that now it's butt time? <laughs> when is butt time start? You got to serve prison first. I don't think a 16-year-old who wants to get some weed is going straight for, let's just shove it up my ass. I don't think. And this is not a sexual pro- pro- proclivity thing. This is a how do I not get in trouble thing. When do you make the decision in your narcotics smuggling eh, smuggling is not the right word at this point i think it's like when you're trying to move material eh, smuggling if you're trying to move illegal material from one place to another over time there's a a fork in the road where you say to yourself the pockets aren't working anymore on behind the behind the behind the the hubcap of the wheel ain't working anymore I can't hide it in the glove box anymore. Going to have to figure something out new. And somebody's going to say to him, like, well, you know, you know, if you really want a good spot, the old asshole is the best spot. And you're going to have this moment in your life where you're going to start to say to yourself, that's the moment I want. The realization of like, I can move all this stuff, but it's going to have to go up my ass. It's going to have to go up my ass. And then... There's preparation. You, if let's say you're smuggling drugs in your ass, you have to make sure that it's clean afterwards. People aren't going to just start buying drugs from the guy who is putting everything in his butt. I mean, I, I think that I would like to know if there was some sort of, you know, in Marvel, there's the watcher. The watcher sees everything. I want to know how the, the likelihood that pre- you know, marijuana being legal. I want to know how many people actually had drugs that were before they knew it that had that had resided in someone's colon or asshole or stomach. That's what I want to know, and I want it. I want it to be like a. I want it to be like this big reveal, like John Doe. You, 1995, you smoked some weed. I have news for you. It was up that guy's ass over here for, you know, a week and a half as he crossed over the border. It would be crazy to know if I'd ever ingested drugs that were up someone's ass that I didn't know about. Because, you know, people do things behind closed doors. You don't know. That's the only reason why drugs might not be the best move. Because it's like... Could have been in some, and I, I didn't, I've smoked weed before, and I definitely smoked illegal weed, and there's a very good chance that that weed before I smoked it was up someone's ass, and I wouldn't even know about it, and that becomes, that becomes, 
Now that I think about it, and I think that now that you think about it, I believe you, the listener, who have done illegal drugs, if you're at a certain age, you've done illegal drugs, there's a very good chance that, that those illegal drugs you were using were up someone's ass. No question. There's a percentage. You can't rule it out. That's for sure. Even if it's from, from one of your fucking dumb friends. There's a very good chance we've all been smoking weed or eating drugs that were up someone's asshole. That's disturbing. Disturbing. But it's true. Now that things are legal, less assholes, it's all good. But now that I think about it, that, that story makes me th- a little queasy, frankly. <laughs> it just makes me queasy. And it should make you queasy too. And it should make you really cr- think about all the drugs you've done. And I know some friends who've done dr- years and years and years of drugs. I would think that a percentage of them had gone up someone's butt. Something to think about. The state of the union is good. Yeah, don't do any illegal drugs because they're very good. That's the one thing you don't talk about. You know, Nancy Reagan, when she said don't do drugs, no one ever said this This stuff could have been up someone's ass. There's, there was never a hygiene issue with drugs. There was never like, uh, well, you could get germs. What do you mean germs? Well, this could have been up someone's butt. Yeah, I don't think that, I don't think we, that's a, that's a, a drug issue we never even thought about. So, well, that was fun. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> well the state of the union's okay guys listen i'm with you i'm with you i don't i don't know what to tell you i don't know what to tell you that i just didn't really think things through and that was it so i'm with you well listen guys we got some good guests coming up we're gonna keep the we're gonna keep you guys company we're gonna keep you occupied we're gonna fool around we're going to we're going to keep the state of the union <laughs> stated in the union unionized. We're going to get it all squared away, and we're going to see you next week. So I want to thank my sponsors. I want to thank you all. I want to wish you all a happy new year. Here's to peace, prosperity, good health, and stay away from that ass drugs. Stay away from the ass drugs, ladies and gentlemen. You don't know it, but I'm telling you, there's a very good chance you've been uh, you've been touched. You've been touched by a butt. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, stop it. Stop it, and we will see you next week. All right, guys, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.